0: Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host Niall Green and in this episode we're going to be discussing the surprising story of the interplay between the Muslim Hajj pilgrimage and the British Empire. India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Malaysia, Tanzania, Nigeria, Sudan, Egypt, Palestine, Jordan, Iraq and southern Yemen. These are just some of the modern countries whose Muslims fell under British rule in the course of the 19th and earlier 20th century. But the colonial period coincided indeed fostered the opening of borders and the movement of people, whether for work and trade or for education and pilgrimage. In this episode, we'll be talking about the latter, about the great Muslim pilgrimage to Mecca, known as the Hajj. And we'll be exploring a perhaps surprising story of entanglement and management as the Hajj pilgrimage increased on an unprecedented scale in the course of the later 19th and early 20th century, especially from those interconnected regions under Muslim colonial rule. Helping me examine this topic is John Slight, a lecturer in Imperial and Global History at the Open University in the United Kingdom. Dr. Slight is the author of the book The British Empire and the Hajj, which was published by Harvard University Press in 2015. Hello, John. Welcome, Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Hello. So today we're going to be talking about the Hajj, the great Muslim pilgrimage under the British Empire. Now, while the British Empire wasn't a Muslim empire, it was an empire of Muslims. And in demographic, as well as geographical terms, it was the largest Muslim empire in history that stretched at its peak in the early 20th century from West Africa through the Middle East to what's now India and Pakistan all the way down to Southeast Asia with Malaya, what's now Malaysia. So across this this vast geography, the British Empire is perhaps the most ethnically and linguistically diverse empire of Muslims that's ever existed as well. But the period of the British Empire coincided in many ways also caused the infrastructure of modern globalisation. And in the 19th and early 20th century, the period we'll be talking about today, that effectively meant the infrastructures of steam travel, trains and particularly steamships through the interconnected ports of the, the British Empire. And it's those that technology of steam travel that in many ways enables the expansion of the Hajj in the period that we're talking about today that sees this this, this huge uh, increase. You might talk about numbers as we go on from perhaps a, a couple of thousand uh, Muslims per year going on the annual pilgrimage to Mecca to the tens of thousands in the, the earlier 20th century. So this uh, this big imperial infrastructure then enables the Hajj, infrastructure but also in various ways administratively as we'll talk about today. But before we get into the the details of of the Hajj under the British Empire, perhaps you can just tell us first of all, why was Islam so important to the British Empire?
1: Well, I think, as you said, Niall, uh, Islam was important to the British Empire for two key things. Uh, First is that geography that you mentioned, that vast geographic sweep across Africa and Asia. The second is uh, demographic. And if we think in particular of British India's huge Muslim population um, in this period, and by the time we get to 1920, about half of all the Muslims living in the world are under some form uh, of British rule. So this is clearly a very uh, big thing indeed. And you have uh, British statesmen like Winston Churchill uh, calling this uh, space, calling Britain the greatest Muslim power. Now, obviously, that is for uh, rhetorical purposes, but this was something that was used by Muslims in the British Empire to their own ends as well. And the final thing that made Islam important to the British Empire was the way in which the British engaged with various aspects of Islamic practices and processes. So if we think about things like Islamic law and how that evolves in places like India into what they call anglo mohammedan law, you have very many imperial policies that are related to uh, other aspects of Islam. If we think about the regulation of mosques and imams, if we think about the regulation of madrasas, uh, the religious schools that were set up, uh, all over the empire. The colonial state has a surprising degree of involvement in all of these things across all these different colonial and imperial territories. And could you give us a,
0: an outline, perhaps by the, the, the period we're talking about today, what we might call the kind of the the, the the high imperial period, perhaps from 1870 through to the period of decolonisation in the 1940s, 50s, 60s. What kind of places are we talking about?
1: Well, I think in, you mean in geographical terms, yeah, well, I think if we, if we start in West Africa, you've got uh, the British colony uh, of Nigeria and the British uh, conquered that colony in the early 1900s. The northern part of that colony is a majority uh, Muslim area with a very rich uh, Islamic history theological and political. Uh, If we go uh, eastwards, if we look at Sudan, which the British conquered again in a similar period, uh, overthrowing a Muslim regime there, you have the British occupation uh, of Egypt in 1882, what was called the Veiled Protectorate, and Egypt eventually became a protectorate for a brief period uh, during the First World War. Then if we look at the Middle East, we have the expansion of British Imperial rule to places like Palestine, Transjordan, now called Jordan, and most famously Iraq and then we have the Gulf states under various forms of British protection we have India as I mentioned before which has the largest number of Muslims in the British Empire and then if we go towards Southeast Asia we have Malaya uh, the great port city of uh, Singapore and also we should remember that there were Muslims in British colonies like Australia and New Zealand small in number but they still had significant histories uh, themselves
0: Now the Hajj, the annual pilgrimage to, to Mecca, which is uh, is one of the five pillars of Islam that, that Muslims are meant to undertake once in their lifetime insofar as they're able to, that becomes much more possible uh, during the, the, the colonial period, partly through these technological reasons that, that we've already mentioned, the spread of steam travel, but also through certain administrative issues that I'm sure we'll get to. But can you give us an overview, perhaps first of all, of, of how the Hajj, change from the pre-colonial to the colonial era?
1: Yeah so if we think about that pre-colonial era we've got two uh, uh, key figures as it were. The first is the figure of the camel, you have the great hajj caravans that are going from these great Islamic cities uh, like Cairo and Istanbul uh, all the way uh, across the deserts uh, to Mecca and Medina Um, and these are really kind of very large uh, administrative structures in their own right um, and they, they're carrying thousands of pilgrims and then if we think about the, uh, the this, how pilgrims get to Arabia from across the Indian Ocean, this is of course in the pre-colonial era, the Age of Sail so we have these enormous again, very large Had uh, ships which are sponsored by Mughal emperors like Akbar and Aurangzeb, who are carrying again, sort of in this period about 10 to fifteen thousand pilgrims every year now the the Hajj in this period it's it's a very expensive undertaking so very often most of these pilgrims were quite rich and the Hajj is also known uh, as an occasion for great commerce and so you have lots of these pilgrims they're taking various goods and commodities to trade uh, in Mecca and then those goods are then sold on across the Muslim world uh, and beyond of course this changes as you mentioned earlier with the rise of steam travel uh, and these these routes from the age of sail they become pl- uh, you have steamships uh, taking over those routes and of course if we think uh, into the later era the early 20th century those Hajj caravans they're replaced by things like the Hejaz railway which is constructed from Damascus to Medina in the early 20th century <laughs>
0: So there's, actually, there's several different empires, in a sense, that are helping to create this new infrastructure, whether, whether deliberately or by coincidence, it becomes, if you like, a kind of a pilgrimage infrastructure. The Ottoman Imperial Hejaz uh, Railway that you've mentioned which is actually very largely funded in fact by donations from, from Indian Muslims in the British Empire, but also then the, the, the British imperial infrastructure originally established to deliver post from, from London to, to Calcutta that then creates the first steamships in 1825, I think the first steamship arrives in, in Calcutta, but then enables then private travel then as, as rather than just purely, let's say, uh, administrative and, uh, and postal delivery. <laughs> So what were then, as this infrastructure starts to fall into place then for travel, what were the British Empire's policies to the, policies towards the Hajj in the, the high imperial era, the later 19th and first half of the 20th century?
1: Well, initially, if we think about famous Victorian explorers like Richard Burton, who went on the Hajj uh, in disguise, um, he was very exercised that the British Empire was not having more engagement with these pilgrims who were coming from British uh, colonial territories. Now that does change largely as a result of cholera, which I think we'll talk about uh, later, but what we see uh, by the later 19th century there is a, a, a tension among British colonial authorities uh, between their legal commitments uh, to religious freedom of their colonial subjects principally in India after Queen Victoria's proclamation of 1858 after the Mutiny Rebellion which replaced East India Company rule uh, with uh, the rule of the British government. Now. That means that the British colonial authorities, they want to allow their subjects to engage in this type of religious travel and activity. But, and so this is part of this policy uh, wider policy of laissez-faire which is a policy uh, to not interfere in the workings of the free market. But there is a tension here because allowing pilgrims uh, to travel, it does lead to certain consequences which the British then end up engaging with. And if I just give you one example, uh, from the 1870s we get the figure of what the colonial authorities call the pauper pilgrim. Now these are destitute pilgrims where they scrape together enough money to make that journey from whether it's India, or Malaya or elsewhere, but they, after they perform the Hajj, they've run out of money and so they're basically impoverished and stranded in Arabia.
0: They've often bought a one way ticket, isn't it, effectively?
1: <laughs> exactly, and so what we find is that once they've performed the Hajj, Uh, they're, they're, They're stranded, they're abandoned, and this is something where the British authorities, you have a British consulate in Jeddah, which is the nearest port to Mecca, they start agitating for some kind of supervision, some sort of administrative arrangement to help these pilgrims get back home. Now the the problem here is that for the colonial authorities they're engaged in this debate with their Muslim collaborators within the colonial regime about should they make it compulsory to have a return ticket and it's seen as uh, preventing the, the performance of pilgrims religious duties. In India, that debate is never really resolved. What the colonial government ends up doing in the 1920s is paying a significant amount of money every year to repatriate these destitute Indian pilgrims. But if we look at other colonial governments in the British Empire, like Malaya, they do decide to say you actually need a return ticket, otherwise you're not going to be allowed uh, to go on the Hajj um, at all. So I think there is a definite tension here between Commitments being made, laissez-faire ideology, and then this logistical need to manage this, this group of pilgrims which are coming from all over the empire to Mecca and back every year.
0: That's an important, two important points you make there, among others. Um, um, one is that, actually, although we talk for the sake of convenience about this big thing, the British Empire... They're actually the different colonies, the different protectorates. They have different statuses within the empire itself, which, include, which in turn create different administrative setups, different legal uh, uh, legal regimes, and therefore different types of, of, of management from utter what we call laissez-faire, just allow the Muslims to take responsibility for themselves on the hand itself, or indeed a level of, of uh, increasing... What could be seen as interference to actually, as you said, kind of make sure that people can only go on the hajj if they have the financial wherewithal to come back as well. <laughs> and the other important point that you mentioned then is this idea of of what we borrow the language of, of economics, to say laissez-faire, which was the The official policy that came from 1858, as you mentioned with Queen Victoria's proclamation, that the British Empire allowed freedom of conscience and freedom of religion, freedom of religious practice to all of its citizens, regardless of what their religion was. And and that was, depends how one looks at it, perhaps in some ways as a strategy of, let's say, colonial enablement, we will look after the finances and the things that matter most to us for extractive or other purposes in order to uh, and, and allow you to continue with your cultural, religious affairs, or indeed it was part of a, a larger set of Victorian ideas, Victorian ideals in many ways, of based in Victorian liberalism, both economic and political. So I think it's very useful what you've said; it gives us a sense of the the British Empire as something perhaps more complex than is often assumed to be. And it's that that complexity which, of course, generates a whole different range of of Muslim positions towards the empire, and indeed towards the, the, the hajj itself. So amid these different attempts at management in the different colonies that you've talked about, different attempts to to manage, to administer, to enable the, the hajj, there were various crises that uh, that occurred over the late 19th, 30th, early 20th century. Some of these crises were medical, some were political, whether in terms of the great... Great, or the the terrible, I should say, cholera epidemics of the later 19th, early 20th century, or political uh, crises in terms of anti-colonial activism, for which to some extent the Hajj and Mecca became uh, a haven for uh, anti-colonial Muslim activists of various kinds. So how did these different types of crisis affect both British policy and the experience of ordinary pilgrims?
1: if I start with the issue of cholera and indeed other epidemic diseases like smallpox, cholera is really uh, the disease which puts the Hajj on the map for the British colonial authorities. There is a large cholera epidemic in 1865 which kills about 30,000 out of 90,000 pilgrims. It eventually kills 250,000 people worldwide and it spreads to Europe and the United States and it's really the spread of this disease Uh, from India through pilgrims to Arabia and then Europe, which really causes Britain and the other European colonial powers to sit up and take notice of the Hajj. And so what happens is that there's a series of international sanitary conferences that are convened, convened by the European powers with the Ottoman Empire's involvement as well, because, of course, it was in their interest to stem the spread of these diseases within their realms. And what you see from the 1870s, there's a quite an elaborate system of quarantine uh, uh, quarantine structures set up in order to regulate the flow of pilgrims to and from from Mecca. So, in terms of that infrastructure, that is things like pilgrims uh, going through disinfection sheds in the ports before they get onto their ships in Bombay or Singapore. It is pilgrims uh, being forced to undergo quarantine in small islands in the Red Sea, like Camran and that they're forced to stay there for five to ten days depending on whether cholera has been detected on their ship or not. So that's a major expansion of colonial policy towards the Hajj in this realm of medical surveillance. And this is one of the
0: one of the I suppose the dilemmas of, 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 the, of the British Empire as and British British administrators and of course there are various when we talk about British administrators I probably shouldn't do that I should probably say imperial administrators because at, at various levels of the colonial administration particularly by the 1920s and 30s onwards there were various various Muslims involved as well not least on the medical side Muslim doctors so part of the the dilemma of, of the the, 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 the British imperial administrators, both, let's say, Muslim and non-Muslim, is the fact that, that Mecca and the Muslim holy land, more generally the Hejaz, isn't part of the British Empire. So whereas the, 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 very, the imperial administrators are able to, let's say, kind of control the movement of people, whether of, in terms of pilgrimage or, or medically or, or in terms of commerce and in terms of legality, administration within the empire itself, The dilemma is that that Mecca is part of a different empire, which is to say the Ottoman Empire, and that has its own administration and its own norms as well that we'll come to to later. So there's this particular dilemma then, isn't it, because the the Hajj is one of the most, uh, even in the 19th century, the age of great global migrations, that the Hajj is a particularly intense movement of people which has to take place within a couple of weeks and ultimately within within uh, the space of around one week for the for the pilgrimage itself each year.
1: Yeah, and I think what you see here is that huge concentration of people in a small space from so many different parts of uh, what comes to be known as the Muslim world, that does create a very particular environment for the spread of epidemic disease in a way that other gatherings of people for religious or non-religious purposes uh, doesn't create. So I think really with uh, the case of Mecca and perhaps we could think about Hindu pilgrimages in India as well, you've got a unique set um, of circumstances. But in terms of the experience of quarantine for ordinary pilgrims, now we have various accounts mostly uh, largely written by uh, elite educated Muslims who undergo the same process as their poorer uh, co-religionists And there's a great sense of resentment at these procedures that they are being forced to undergo because they feel they're being treated differently to white European populations who wouldn't necessarily have had to have gone through such such a rigorous uh, quarantine uh, procedure. And so here in the writings of these Muslim pilgrims, we can see their frustration at the inequalities and the hierarchies which are being played out in this broader imperial space. But we also see uh, pilgrims taking matters into their own hands and I think this idea that pilgrims are this sort of passive group of people I think is a view that uh, needs to be corrected, because we see pilgrims, they evade these regulations often quite successfully, they take different ships, so they avoid those routes which have uh, the quarantine, uh, the sanitary stations, and they're also able to uh, forge certificates that prove they've been vaccinated against certain diseases as well. So I think there's, there is, there's frustration, there, there's resentment, but there's also a lot of creativity in getting around these various, uh, these various medical and sanitary regulations.
0: That's important, isn't it, talking about the, 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 the agency or the, of, of the pilgrims, the fact that they, they weren't sort of, as it were, passively being shuttled, as we often are perhaps in sort of the days of the, the modern airport being shuffled from space to space. They had their own ideas of various kinds. And, and of course, although we refer to them as pilgrims, indeed their title would be haji, someone who's made the hajj when they come home. Of course, the pilgrimage wasn't the only thing they were doing on their travels. Various pilgrims stayed on for years and years, some, in some cases the rest of their lives in the holy cities of Mecca and Medina, whether as students or as teachers. So the Hajj becomes a very important uh, uh, vector for religious ideas, and indeed religious debates, and in many ways inter-Muslim theological and legal conflicts in the 19th and particularly as the 20th century goes on. But the Hajj also, in the later 1930, 20th century in particular, becomes uh, a focus for a minority of pilgrims, but nonetheless some quite influential pilgrims, becomes a focus for anti-colonial activism.
1: Yes, and I think you see the beginnings of that uh, presence in in anti-colonial terms after 1857, the Indian Mutiny Rebellion. You have... Uh, several Muslims who are wanted for various uh, actions they committed during those events they flee to Arabia and they flee to Arabia precisely because it is a safe space for them it is beyond the reach of the British colonial authorities and this is something which uh, the colonial authorities in India but also at the British consulate in Jeddah are constantly aware of that beyond their reach as it were in in places like Mecca in in schools in coffee houses and other places there are there are these men, and they were all men, uh, they are kind of continuing these types of anti-colonial conversations and we do have various moments where the british colonial authorities are able to leverage their influence uh, in relation to these people so if we think about the first world war when uh, the the ruler of mecca sharif hussein uh, he rebels against his uh, against the ottoman empire and he does that with a large degree of british uh, financial and political support and as a in return for that Uh, the British ask him to arrest some of these men uh, who were being particularly active in the anti-colonial movement during the First World War and we see them uh, arrested and exiled to Malta, an island in the Mediterranean which becomes quite infamous during the First World War period uh, as a place where anti-colonial figures uh, from India, from Egypt and elsewhere uh, where they are incarcerated for that uh, period of time. In terms of how this type of surveillance um, and other related activity, how far it impacts on the ordinary pilgrims, uh, that's that's a bit harder to assess. We do know that Uh, these uh, figures, they are holding meetings and they are having, as you were saying earlier, they are having this kind of discourse on various uh, religious and political issues with pilgrims, but the extent to which their views are affecting the larger mass of pilgrims uh, is harder to tell. We have some interesting propaganda texts that we know are circulating in Mecca and Medina in the late 19th century and the First World War, but again, it's that constant problem we have of historians, how to assess the impact of these texts on uh, a large group of people.
0: As you mentioned, one of the, the exciting things about studying this period, the late 19th and the early 20th century is the, the communications revolution among Muslims it isn't only one of steam, it's also one of print, isn't it? So so many more pilgrims in this period, uh, publishing their, their memoirs, their, their travelogues, in a sense, of, of, of their visits to, to Mecca and Medina, but also, effectively, in many ways, publishing travel guides, in a sense, to, to enable and to, to guide other Muslims on the prices or the timetables of trains or ships or, indeed, of, of conditions in Mecca, which various uh, Muslim travellers, particularly from India, complain about, in some ways, the insanitary conditions in Mecca, making the bleak, or in some cases, a direct... Uh, critique of the Ottoman imperial administration because I think it's, it's important that we, we recognise that this is a an era of empires. So Mecca itself is part of a, an empire it's, itself, the Ottoman Empire, which as we mentioned is overthrown by a local Arab revolt uh, with British instigation or, or at least input uh, during the uh, the first the First World War. So turning then to to these other empires, this world of empires in the later 19th and the first decades of the 20th century. The Ottoman Empire was disbanded then in, uh, in the early 1920s. To what extent did British policies echo those of these other empires of the period, whether the Ottomans, the Russians, the French, or indeed the Dutch, all of which had very large Muslim populations?
1: Well, I think in the case of the Ottoman Empire, the picture that is painted uh, by those British imperial officials, both British and Muslim alike, is often one, uh, a very negative one. But we need to remember that the Ottomans had a very sophisticated administrative infrastructure. At this point in the later 19th century, they were trying to reassert their control over these peripheral or rather central lands uh, to their empire because their status as the uh, protectors of the holy places of Mecca and Medina gave them a huge Political and religious legitimacy uh, within their empire and throughout the Muslim world. So, I think while the Ottoman administration of the Hajj uh, is very similar to the British and the Russians and the French, they do have this special responsibility which I think marks them out apart. And again, if we look at the work uh, um, of, of scholars and uh, contemporary Ottoman administrative. Administrative officials, there is a deep concern to try and make conditions for pilgrims um, as comfortable as possible within the limits of what the Ottoman Empire um, can do. But there is a great tension. It's the it is this age of empires, and it is an age of inter-imperial competition. And so the Ottomans are constantly having uh, uh, arguments with the British uh, consular authorities in Jeddah, or the, the the French, or the Dutch. But if we if I just take the the another empire, the Russians, which had a very large Muslim population, again, now it's a contiguous land empire, not like the British Empire, which is this uh, rather far-flung set of territories. But you can see with the Russian administration of the Hajj, uh, there are lots of very interesting parallels. The the Russian authorities, they veer between a suspicion of Islam and a desire to be seen as protectors of Muslims, and and the pilgrims in particular, because they're going beyond those Russian imperial borders, depending on the political context in Russia at the time, in terms of their relationships with Muslims, whether that's during the Russian conquest of Central Asia in the later 19th century, or perhaps even after. Afterwards, there's this desire to restrict the Hajj because it's seen as dangerous, or there's this desire to encourage the Hajj for various reasons. You also see the involvement of the Russian, various parts of the Russian imperial state in the Hajj at some periods of time. At other times, the Russians are keen to outsource the administration of the Hajj to these uh, quite an interesting uh, group of of private uh, businessmen. I think that perhaps just A final example with the French, I think with the the French, um, because their largest Muslim population was in Algeria and North Africa and West Africa, the French are much more, uh, let's say, draconian towards the Hajj they are much more uh, concerned about the political and medical implications of the movement of pilgrims from their colonial territories to Mecca and back. So the French authorities in Algeria, they often ban the Hajj outright at many points uh, throughout the 19th century. And this creates a lot of resentment amongst the Algerian Muslim population, but the French uh, colonial authorities are often more adamant than their British uh, counterparts about the need to act in this quite heavy-handed way uh, towards the hutch so i think there are lots of parallels but i think but again within each empire because each of those empires were so complex you get a great variety of different engagements with the hutch
0: and as you hinted at really i mean these different empires have their own distinct political traditions as well let's say so to speak French big state policies let's say versus the traditions of, of high Victorian political liberalism in the sense of laissez- faire so that, that gives us you know this sense as well that the different empires are different because of their different geographies and their different concerns but also their different political uh, political heritages as well perhaps we could take the, the most contentious issue for, for so many of the, the pogroms that you mentioned that of, of quarantine. Um, with regard to the, the, the huge cholera epidemics in the, the late 19th century. Perhaps you could compare British vis-a-vis Ottoman policies towards, the, towards the, how to control the cholera epidemic, and particularly the, the issue of quarantining pilgrims.
1: I think with the, again, there is this danger of us uh, sort of reflecting the views of uh, the British uh, colonial authorities who are writing about this at the time, what we have to, uh, who, and they did have quite a negative view towards uh, the Ottoman quarantine uh, worked in practice. What we have to remember is that the Ottomans were a key player in those series of international sanitary conferences with the European powers and they did play uh, a leading role in uh, erecting that structure of quarantine in, in the Red Sea um, and the Ottoman Empire and framing those regulations uh, beyond. I think in terms of comparing and contrasting them I think what we do see is um, is that there is a, a sort of a, a British desire to very much follow the um, the letter of these regulations, um, and what we see with the Ottomans, because again they're engaged in quite a different sort of set of relationships with pilgrims. Um, they, they are often um, they're often mindful to uh, have more regard to the comfort of pilgrims on those uh, quarantine islands in the Red Sea. Uh, they will um, often. They might often look the other way while pilgrims do do another thing. I think, and I think that is partly because you know these these are the Muslim, the Ottoman Muslim administrators and the Muslim pilgrims. So there is, I think, necessarily a bit of a a different relationship um, to that. <laughs> just the other thing is that with the Ottoman Empire as compared to the British Empire's use of uh, quarantine we have to remember that the Ottoman Empire was dealing with both a maritime quarantine and a land-based quarantine as well right up until the First World War we still have these quite large Hajj caravans going from places like Cairo and Damascus, not as large as the pre-colonial period, but this is still a significant movement of people. So we get that quarantine infrastructure that the Ottomans are setting up to uh, manage this group of pilgrims going on the Hajj caravans. And also what was considered one of the most uh, modern quarantines uh, of the early 20th century was that associated with the Hejaz Railway from Damascus to Medina. As those pilgrims were using that railway for the first time in those years uh, from 1908 to the First World War, there was quite a sophisticated quarantine infrastructure set up um, with that. In terms of the... Pilgrim reaction to the Ottoman quarantine, um, again, it's it's very much dependent on the individual, and I, I wouldn't want to generalise, but I think there is a view that the Ottomans, because they're a Muslim empire, they, their their administration of quarantine is seen in a different light to the European powers. And that's
0: interesting, isn't it? We've already mentioned the issue of sources, and because in the, the, the late 19th century the spread of so many newspapers, the Ottoman Empire by the early 20th century has has uh, well over 100 uh, newspapers and journals in print. And in in British India as well, there are so many magazines and newspapers, particularly newspapers in Urdu. So, and the Hajj is such a concern that there are letters to editors. These are really public issues. that, for the Ottomans, as well as for the British, these are, as it were, the the Hajj is, is the Muslim topic that has to be managed. Whether either of the the empires want to do so or not, isn't it? But it's a really important public issue in the sense of it's really out there in print in the public sphere.
1: And I think that's precisely because you have so many pilgrims going on Hajj every year uh, during this high imperial era that... The, those pilgrims going on the Hajj and coming back they obviously have extended families and friends and networks and so their experiences are broadcast not only through newspapers but through um, through telling uh, tales of their travels and so the, the, the knowledge of the Hajj and what the conditions are like and what the Ottomans are doing or what the British are doing um, is, is very widespread uh, indeed amongst uh, these Muslim populations uh, in the British Empire and I think just another uh, thing to say about sources beyond those printed sources is that towards the end of this period, the interval period, we start to get the first uh, um, we start to get the first film images uh, of the Hajj And again, because the cinema is is it spreads quite rapidly across the world uh, in this period, we do know that some of the most popular uh, screenings in certain places um, in uh, uh, India or Malaya are of those uh, great iconic images. Um, related to the pilgrimage itself and it's only towards the later uh, part of this period that we actually get the first filmed images of Mecca but I think just giving you that example is is to help uh, people get a sense really of, of how, how big a deal the Hajj was amongst uh, a, a population both literate and non-literate using a variety of sources.
0: We mentioned the fact that in terms of sheer numbers that the Hajj expands enormously in in the the, the high period of empire, but it also is transformed in terms of the, the types of people that can go. We've talked about, you know, on the one hand in the, the pre-colonial Hajj where the most typical program was the wealthy merchant we also, we've, we've mentioned the other end of the spectrum by the, the early 20th century, late 19th and 20th century there was the problem of the pauper pilgrim from the other end of the spectrum who managed to, to beg, borrow uh, enough money to perhaps buy a one-way ticket. But there was also a great expansion of middle-class pilgrims of, of, of the tourist industry. You've written about the role of the Thomas Cook um, uh, travel company and its uh, short-lived and aborted uh, venture in, in creating the uh, Hajj tourism, in a sense, for middle-class pilgrims. And there's also, as well as in terms of, let's say, kind of class, there was a, an increasing range of the types of Muslim, including Muslim converts from Britain. I remember some years ago in, in Japan reading in uh, uh, an exiled Tatar Muslim uh, journal about the, the conversion and the hajj of the British aristocrat, Lord Headley, who'd been converted by, by uh, Indian Muslim missionaries in Britain. So I wonder if you could give us a sense of perhaps the contrasting experiences of different hajj's from perhaps different ends of the British Empire.
1: Yeah, so I think if I start with a British convert to Islam who went on the hajj from Britain, that would, uh, her name was Lady Evelyn Cobalt, her Muslim name was Zainab. And she converted to Islam uh, in the 1920s and she was the very uh, sort of you could say stereotypical uh, scottish aristocrat with her large estate but she spent a lot of time in north africa and it was that engagement with islam there which led to her uh, conversion now lady Cobbold is interesting for a number of reasons uh, she is one of the oldest british women to go on the hajj uh, in this period she's 64 uh, when she goes on Hajj in the early 1930s she also because of her wealth she's allowed to, she's able to go by motor car and that is that was still quite a novel means of transport in Arabia at that time and it was not an easy ride because of the nature uh, of the roads more suited to uh, camels than motor cars but in terms of her journey um she starts off, she sails from Southampton to Marseille and then gets another boat um, to Alexandria, and there her journey overland begins uh, by car, and she's obviously using her aristocratic connections and um, to really sort of smooth every step of the way. Um, so even though she's performing the Hajj um, at a relatively advanced age uh, for that period, uh, she definitely has uh, a smoother ride. Um, the most. If I perhaps take another example from uh, the other end of uh, uh, Britain's Muslim uh, uh, empire, it would be a man called Haji Abdullah, who was uh, an inspector of schools in British Malaya. And uh, his experience of the Hajj, I think, is a fairly a uh, typical uh, middle class Malay experience at that time. takes quite a, a long time for him to save up uh, for the steamship ticket, but along with other Hajis, he boards his ship in Singapore. Um, and there he has, uh, like all Malay pilgrims and those from the Indonesian archipelago, he has a fairly lengthy journey of a few weeks uh, across the Indian Ocean, uh, across areas which have quite rough seas, and lots of pilgrims uh, are not used to that type of uh, travel, so there is a lot of seasickness, um, and uh, alongside those other diseases that I was talking about earlier, and the ship. Uh, stops uh, to take on uh, coal and provisions at places like the British colonial port city of Aden at the southern tip of Arabia, and then it makes its way up the Red Sea uh, to Jeddah, and there uh, uh, Haji Abdullah uh, joins uh, the other uh, pilgrims from across the Muslim world um, on a more uh, perhaps typical uh, Hajj uh, experience. If we take um, an example uh, from uh, the British territories in West Africa, uh, Nigeria, we have quite an interesting account of one of the, the caliphs, the rulers of Sokoto, which is an area in northern um, Nigeria which was conquered by the British. Um, now, this is an interesting early 20th century example of uh, a figure like that uh, sponsoring uh, poorer uh Uh, intending pilgrims to make that very long journey from Nigeria to Mecca. Now what that meant in practice was uh, travel overland, often on foot, sometimes by a horse or other other creatures, um, across uh, the Sahel region, uh, which is just below the Sahara Desert. And this is a journey of about 3,000 miles uh, under some pretty unforgiving uh, um, environmental conditions. Eventually, the, the pilgrim party, they reach Sudan, where they come across groups of fellow Nigerian pilgrims at various uh, towns and villages along the route uh, towards um, the, the Red Sea. And these are a group which are known as permanent pilgrims. These are pilgrims who, they've worked their way towards Mecca, uh, but they've never got there. They, they decide to settle, uh, they have families, they have work, uh, but these Groups of permanent pilgrims are of great help to this Nigerian Pilgrim Party in easing their passage across Sudan towards the Red Sea. Once they get to the Red Sea uh, in this period, they get on a boat um, at the newly created a port called Port Sudan, which replaced the old port, Suakin, that was just to the south of it. And there they have a fairly short uh, steamship passage across the Red Sea um, to Jeddah. And again, they join that larger group of pilgrims there. So I think we've got sort of three journeys from very different locations uh, in the British Empire, but it gives you a sense of the, the scale of those journeys, of the variety of those journeys, but also how the Hajj in this period uh, because of various technological uh, developments uh, in, in the travel sector, uh, mainly steamships and other things, it's ne- you're now able to see a much greater number of pilgrims uh, going on Hajj uh, than ever before. And this is something which is commented on by uh, these people that I've uh, just mentioned, but also by lots of pilgrims who have written their narratives down. They're really struck by that huge variety of people from across the Muslim world, this world of empires, but also as we move into the 20th century nation states. We have accounts of Uh, people from from Central Asia, from places as far afield as South Africa, Um, and one of the more interesting examples that I found uh, was um, an account of uh, some pilgrims who had come all the way from the Caribbean, from British colonies in the West Indies in the interwar period. Um, So I think, again, that gives you a sense of uh, really you know, Mecca is very much this microcosm uh, of Islam um, uh, during the period when the hajj is performed.
0: I think you captured that wonderfully, the sense that this is globalisation happening in, in, as you've said, these infrastructural forms. But it's a religious and indeed a specifically Muslim form of, of globalization, which reminds me in the 1920s as well. I mean, as you mentioned, the interwar period, this is when we actually have the first group of, of Japanese convert Muslims as well, sort of echoing from East Asia, the, the arrival of uh, the earliest European uh, converts. So the Hajj, of course, continues today in a, a different era of globalization. So as we draw to our Close of our uh, conversation, perhaps I can ask you what lessons can we learn today from this little-known history of Muslim pilgrimage under British rule.
1: I think we can learn three things. Probably the importance of technological change uh, in really enabling. The, the travels of people for a religious purpose, but also the complexity that that leads to and, and the and the management that is needed for that greater degree of complexity of movement of people. So if we think about, we've been talking about uh, the age of, of, of steam, of steamships, um, if we think about the logistics of managing the HUD by plane in the present day, um, and again, that is an enormous logistical uh, um, It's enormously logistically complicated, and you have specific Hajj terminals set up in countries like Nigeria um, and Pakistan, and again, it's that movement of people which is really complex. I think the second lesson from the, the, the British imperial angle is that the British, really through their engagement with the Hajj, they're searching to gain legitimacy as a ruler of Muslim populations. Now, they try and do that in, many and varied ways, but they never really succeed in doing that throughout the whole tenure um, of their rule over Muslim populations. So I think this idea of state searching for legitimacy by engaging in certain religious rituals, that's something which it can be limited because of the complexities of those political structures. And the final lesson uh, to bring the story right up Uh, to the the present day in early March 2020 is that tension between uh, religious freedoms and this complex movement of people and the consequences that that has and I'm thinking especially we had the cholera in the 19th century but today we have another epidemic disease the coronavirus and in fact it was only last week that the Saudi Arabian government took what Uh, most people think is a fairly unprecedented move of suspending the travel of all pilgrims going to Saudi Arabia in this period, not to perform the Hajj, to perform something called the Umrah, which is the the lesser pilgrimage, but to our knowledge that that type of restriction has never really uh, happened before. So I think it will be very interesting to see uh, what the consequences of that uh, are uh, for the Hajj today and in the future. John Slide, thank you for talking to us in ACBUS Chamber. Thank you very much.